I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. What can we learn about ourselves, our history, and our modern world from the movies released in a single year? Well, it turns out an awful lot. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and this is the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. The A Year in Film TV series is currently available on Hollywood Suite On Demand and the Hollywood Suite family of channels in Canada. Season 1 is available now, and you can find out more at hollywoodsuite.ca. A single TV episode can't contain all the stories about movies in a single year. So in each episode of the podcast, myself, film and content specialist Cam Maitland, and film curator and historian Alicia Fletcher will bring some more movies from the selected year to life. So dry off your sense of humor and get ready to have some catchy tunes stuck in your head. Sorry about that. In this episode of A Year in Film, 1978, Part 2, Pop Culture Powerhouses, Elaine May, and Beatles Movies Without the Beatles. In a lot of 1978, we talk about the gritty stuff. We talk about the Vietnam War and all the movies that were being made at that time. Uh, we also talked about Saturday Night Fever, which is also weirdly gritty and kind of sad. But comedy was also a really big thing in 1978. And we're going to get into that a bit today. Cam, what was going on in the comedy scene? I mean, a lot, actually. It's a pretty huge era for comedy. I think stand-up was big. Uh, you obviously had Saturday Night Live at that point. Um, and yeah, you were seeing a lot of that translated into the movies. You have to think that uh, the top of the box office in 1978, in spite of all the movies we talk about, is stuff like Grease, Animal House, uh, Every Which Way But Loose, which we've talked about, Hooper, the oft-forgotten <laughs> Burt Reynolds stuntman movie. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. Because comedy was such a big genre, they were exploring a lot of new things. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think 1978, you could trace it as as the start of the big teen sex comedy boom uh, because of Grease and Animal House. Corvette Summer uh, starring uh, young Mark Hamill. Um, but there's those, and then there's kind of a divide because there's also very adult comedies, I think kind of coming off of the era of Woody Allen, who is off making interiors. Uh, so there's stuff like An Unmarried Woman, Who's Killing the Great Chefs of Europe, Foul Play, uh, even something like... Uh, girlfriends is really a push come to shove uh, like a dramedy um so yeah it, it's interesting um a lot of comedy in the box office also a lot of uh debuts uh people like jim belushi <laughs> there's not just one belushi uh and uh Cheech oh, and some Trump. people would argue there is only one belushi. <laughs> i've heard this <laughs> Listen, argument I think, yes I, I think i think he's um he's he's found his own twin niche. peaks uh 
sure yeah exactly uh chicha chong had their first film with up in smoke very popular uh billy crystal the first time in a film in the rabbit test uh which i know is one you you have opinions on i do i do well also because i'm such a huge joan rivers fan and for that to be her debut directorial debut written and directed it's unwatchable which is really heartbreaking (laughs) yeah i mean uh billy crystal you know he had soap and stuff he's gonna be fine uh but yeah it's uh so it's an interesting time because actually it is a a very exciting time for comedy and i think you're finding that hollywood and comedy writers and comedy directors are kind of finding their way towards what would be the huge comedy boom in the 1980s would this be like one of the first times they were really starting to pull stand-up comics as movie stars in this way like i mean previously you had people like bob hope and stuff like that but now you've got a new generation like richard Pryor. yeah i think that kind of stand-up because it's like uh you're right. There's the vaudeville people always. They they made up uh, everything. But I think that that kind of continued on through the 50s. And I mean, I guess you get uh, Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin, stuff like that. But I think what we think of, of modern stand-up comedy, a guy at a mic, uh, yeah, you see them uh, absolutely become movie stars in their own right. And a lot of people were developing their chops at this point on stage. They were doing sketches. They were doing stand-up. And this is where that sketch and stand-up started to come in with people like Nichols and May and Elaine May, who's really one of the defining voices of 1970s film if we're talking about them. Uh, Alicia, you love Elaine May as much as I do. You recently programmed a retrospective for the TIFF Bell Lightbox here in Toronto. I dragged my best friend and her fiancé to see your screening of The Heartbreak Kid with Swedish subtitles and uh, the two of them love it so much they just relentlessly quote bits at each other it's uh disgusting and a little disturbing considering what that film is about Mm -hmm. um but yeah the next 40 or 50 years is definitely a part of their vocabulary now Mm -hmm. uh who was elaine may and why was she so definitive and necessary well first of all listeners who are wondering why i would show a swedish subtitled print of the heartbreak kid (laughs) feel free to email me personally and i'll explain explain that very dark two months of my life um (laughs) the the answer is it's the only print that exists because elaine may as i'm about to talk about is someone who i would actually say in the last two years since doing that retrospective has become much more written about much more admired much more discussed but really one of the most underappreciated undervalued masterminds of comedy um, someone that, you know, millennials probably don't know her name. They might know, you know, her. Well, actually, they might know her name because she was in a Woody Allen, the one with um, Miley Cyrus, the recent yes, like Woody uh, Allen. Six scenes from a crisis. Yeah, or I think she's in that. But um, Amazon show. Yes. But coming back to the origins of, you know, Elaine May. Much like, you know, a lot of histories of people, uh, it's it's 99% lies. Um, what's interesting about Elaine May's case... <laughs> of a certain generation, yeah, what's right? interesting about Elaine May's case is they're her, her, her own lies that people fail to fact check and then have just gotten written into endless biographies of hers. Um, what we do know, she often will say she grew up in the Yiddish vaudeville houses and was a theater performer from the age of four and was like you know did like gymnastics which is actually i think she's borrowing from buster keaton's history uh that's definitely not true although that gets printed all the time it's something that she said in the 60s i think in one interview what we do know is that um 
At the age of 17, Elaine May had a ninth grade education um, and a daughter at 17 and left her husband and packed up the car and drove to Chicago to become a comedian. Um, And I always try to keep that in mind when I'm talking about Elaine May, that this is someone who was a teenage mother who, you know, dropped out of the first year of high school. And this is how brilliant this woman is. Uh, It's that that same narrative with Patti Smith, too, right? Like these incredibly brilliant women that were in incredibly unfortunate circumstances. And she doesn't talk about it a lot, to be honest. That's why those lies about her growing up in Yiddish vaudeville theaters (laughs) exist. And I think that's part of her, her mystique. But um, once she arrived in Chicago, she met, uh, you know, she couldn't enroll in the University of Chicago because she hadn't graduated high school, but she could take some of the kind of remedial comedy classes and like sketch comedy and improv. And there she met um, Mike Nichols, you know, a name that I'm sure all of our listeners know because he directed The Graduate and a slew of other incredible films. But before he was Mike Nichols, he was Nichols and May and May wore the pants in that relationship as he's always been very open about saying you know she was the idea person she was who he looked up to to be funny she taught him everything he knew about comedy but because of how the film industry and how history writing works and patriarchy you know people know mike nichols name much more so than elaine may although that is changing um I want to just backtrack on how big Nichols and May were. A lot of people don't know that the same night that uh, Marilyn Monroe sang Happy Birthday to JFK, Nichols and May performed on that same stage that yeah, same night. Yeah, they were her opener. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is wild. I hope they came out of a cake or something. Yeah. Um, if you want to hear a little bit of Nichols, Nichols and May, there is some YouTube audio. I mean, they, their comedy albums were some of the top-selling comedy albums of all time. They were hugely sought after and very well compensated for in the commercial field. So some of their commercials for um, just ridiculous household objects are just unbelievably funny and acerbic and surrealist. And they were they were pioneers. And so it comes to the 1970s and Hollywood comes a knocking um, on Elaine May's door. I mean, around the same time, they come a-knocking for Mike Nichols, actually. And uh, she makes her first film, A New Leaf, in 1971, which is one of the funniest films ever made with Walter Matthau. She stars in it. She makes The Heartbreak Kid, probably the second funniest film ever made with Charles Grodin, who she would work with a lot. Um, And there's only, like, one print in existence subtitled in Swedish. Uh, And then she makes Mikey and Nikki, um, which is not a comedy and is an incredibly gritty, more Cassavetes than Cassavetes film starring John Cassavetes and Peter Falk. <laughs> but all of these films, Mikey and Nikki especially, she she did not, she was working under Paramount. She did not, uh, she, she didn't like men telling her what to do. She didn't like anyone telling her what to do. And uh, she was an artist and she didn't really fit that studio system. So she filmed too much footage. She demanded... Um, you know, final cut. She stole the the negative for. Well, I mean, stole is the wrong word. It's her negative, but um, she can we say absconded? She absconded. She I feel absconded like that's the word. with the negative to Mikey and Nikki or the work print. Hid it in her garage for like a year until and held Paramount <laughs> hostage until she got the cut that she wanted. <laughs> and then, you know, kind of became persona non grata. But she was a legend by this point. She would, of course, go on to direct uh, Ishtar in 1985. And then her directing career was over, which we'll talk about in a second. But 
you know, she she was so respected by the industry that when Warren Beatty wanted to make his directorial debut, super heartthrob, sly, like great Warren Beatty has been in at that point so many important films that changed the movie industry. He went to Elaine May like they were friends. And even though she was persona non grata at the studios and no one wanted to work with her, he put his foot down and knew that he wanted that Elaine May stamp on his film, Heaven Can Wait. You make such a good point with him being like the suave, untouchable, basically, playboy, Mm -hmm. and everyone kind of recognizes that. And then you watch Elaine May talk about the way Warren Beatty pitches, (laughs) and she takes the piss out of him like nobody else can. I hope I live live long enough that Elaine May can take the piss out of me. That's my dream. (laughs) Because she can just crush a person at their own celebration, like an AFI tribute, which this is the case with Warren Beatty. But yeah, that that setup. I know you're going to play a clip where she explains how he pitched Heaven Can Wait to her. He has not flaws because Warren is flawless, but he has he has idiosyncrasies. He wanted me to do Heaven Can Wait, and this is how he presented it. He said, um, "It's a remake, and uh, I'm not going to be in it. I'm I'm putting this together." It's a starring vehicle for Muhammad Ali. And it's about a boxer who, he dies and he goes to heaven, but it's a mistake, so they bring him back. But his body has been cremated, so they put him in the body of a CEO whose wife has just murdered him, and then the CEO comes back. And when the CEO comes back, everybody in the movie sees the CEO as the CEO, but the audience sees the CEO as Muhammad Ali. And then Muhammad Ali meets a girl and then a boxer dies and he goes in his body. It's a love story. Now, Heaven Can Wait is a remake, isn't it? Yeah, it's really confusing. So there's a really classic screwball comedy by Ernst Lubitsch called Heaven Can Wait. That's I think it's 19, 1942, maybe 1944. This is not a remake of that film. This is actually a remake of another screwball kind of 40s comedy called uh, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, and it's 1941. I think the image of Heaven Can Wait, which is Warren Beatty on the poster with the heavens behind him wearing a track suit and wings, is very iconic. But I actually do think people don't know a lot about this film or even know what it is or Elaine May's connection. So it's important to point that out. And then, Becky, you and I were talking and you mentioned then Heaven Can Wait gets remade by Chris Rock, starring Chris Mm -hmm. Rock in 2000. What is the like 2000? 2001. Yeah, and it's called Down to Earth, which is not a remake of another film called Down to Earth from the 1940s that stars (laughs) Rita Hayworth. there's there's a, a a lot of complication here, but having can wait at its its heart is uh, oh well. First of all, Muhammad Ali was not cast. Um, Muhammad Ali probably heard no. that pitch and was like, "I'm sorry, what?" Listen, they wanted Muhammad Ali also in 1978 to play Superman, so he was uh, <laughs> Hollywood was knocking for Muhammad Ali, and he said, "No, thank you. I have my thing. <laughs> I'm busy being Muhammad yeah, Ali. Exactly. Yeah. Probably yeah. rather smart, but uh, so when when Muhammad Ali said no. Um, Warren Beatty and Elaine May sat down and Warren Beatty was like, well, I guess I can play it. <laughs> and it <was> like, <laughs> so he's the foot, it's like it's changed from boxing to football. Um, and he's, you know, he's a, he's really training for the Super Bowl. He plays for the Los Angeles Rams and he's on his bike, he's training and he gets in a car accident. And one of the newly trained, uh, clerical angels decides instead of making him suffer through the car accident, he, you know, pulls him to heaven just a few seconds 
beforehand. And it turns out that was an error. He would have actually survived. And so then, you know, and it's play- the, the head of heaven is played by James Mason, who I love so much. It's like, oh, boy, what are we going to do? And then, like, they have to put him <laughs> in the body of a billionaire. Can we be clear that their concept of heaven is like a fog machine in a warehouse <laughs> yes. and then a giant supersonic mm-hmm. jet that's <laughs> all painted mm-hmm. silver? And um, my favorite part of this film is watching Warren Beatty do push-ups oh, in the cloud. He's so hot. He's wearing a lot of uh, very tight track suits in this. This is basically Warren Beatty's thirst trap. Um, I'll never understand. It's, it's I'll never understand the love of I don't of care, Cam. I don't care if you don't. What a, a sleaze. You know who understood? Julie Christie, who's also in yeah, this film. Did she ever? His real life girlfriend. But, you know, so they it, it's, it's a screwball comedy at its greatest. It's a film that pays homage to Ernst Lubitsch, pays homage to films like Topper, which was like a ghost film starring Cary Grant from 1937. And the thing is, is this is what Elaine May, whether it's a screenplay she's written or a film that she's directed, does so well, which is resurrect the classic golden era stories of Hollywood and um, transform them and make the update them for the 70s or for the 80s and have better, more well-rounded female characters and have them be dirtier and, like, all the things that censorship wouldn't allow kind of in the in the 40s, Elaine May can put back in here and still just make it such a, a loving film. I think this is such a delightful film. I really love it. As I was watching it, I couldn't help but think how balanced it is because I had myself thinking genre-wise, is this a romance or is this a sports film? Mm. Because it's both at the same time and it's hard to different but it's also a comedy i mean charles mm-hmm. Grodin, in my opinion is one of the greatest comedic actors oh, of all time he's just his delivery and his timing like he's, he's unbelievable. His most Grodin here too yeah and him and yeah. diane cannon oh are probably the the reason to watch the movie if you don't <laughs> buy warren Beatty like i do uh yeah they're so funny um and jack warden who would go on to do yeah. other stuff with, with as Beatty. the coach yeah he's great yeah. Well, Cam, let me ask you about this because we talked about how this was kind of a remake and then it got remade again. Yeah. And I know you've recently profiled the many versions of A Star is Born. Sure. Um, why do you think some of these stories have this kind of res- resonance, this kind of adaptability? Well, I think that... Uh Honestly, this one got remade again, partially because of the success of Heaven Can Wait. And the interesting thing is, actually, I think like A Star is Born, they don't change that much. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, This still, you'd be shocked at how closely it hems to the plot of Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Yeah, that's true. Uh, They're mostly changing, uh, you know, it's football, it's not boxing. The original was boxing. Chris Rocks, I believe it's a stand-up comedian. Um, And uh, yeah, you're just changing characters and circumstances. And it's just like a great idea uh, of a weird thing. And I think Elaine May brings a lot of black humor to this one. Uh, I think a lot of that Diane Cannon and Charles Grodin trying to murder him over and over. Uh, <laughs> it's there a bit, but it's probably not quite as bleak. And I think she also, like Alicia said, brings kind of the uh, horniness of the 1970s mm-hmm. uh, to the forefront. It's a very sexy movie. Um, and yeah, yeah. So I think it's, if you find the bones, and the bones are quite often a play or just something that works, and uh, you can update it to a, a different time. Uh, and I, I mean, to be fair, this uh, this won an Oscar. I don't know if Chris Rock's adaptation <laughs> got anywhere near that. Uh, but it's something that I think could keep happening. It's yeah. just this weird bureaucratic heaven. It, yeah, won an, it won the Oscar for art direction, coming back to Becky's point about those scenes of heaven, which I have to say 
later I think influenced you know how the Simpsons have depicted heaven mm. like it really is when I was watching it most recently I realized like that is a very innovative way to show heaven it's very minimalist it, all the production design in this film is really incredible actually but yeah that jet that that shininess that minimalism with everyone wearing suits I think also if you love to point out clerical errors in your life this is the <laughs> film for you like if cleric or or if clerical errors are your biggest nightmare such as myself like every time you're mailing in your taxes or mailing in something and you're just so scared that it's not going to make it or something wasn't checked right this is the explosion of how wrong one small clerical error can be <laughs> But also that it continues on, like the bureaucracy doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. And that's the viciousness, I think, of Elaine May is that she understands how those tiny little minutiae of something like a clerical error can just kind of resonate down the line and continue to throw Mm -hmm. kinks in the works. Like there's no, aside from, you know, a death, there's no really big moments in here. Everything is just these small little, little trips and traps that lead up to the end. Yeah. Yeah. And signature Elaine May, she has, so every Elaine May film has a signature cocktail or drink which um, I'm always obsessed with. And, and the one in this is really great. It's uh, he keeps drinking. It's like a, it's, it's a, it's just dropped in for com- comedic effect, but he keeps drinking liver and whey shakes. So when he's reincarnated as the billionaire, you know, which we see Warren Beatty on screen, mm-hmm. but presumably all the characters around him are seeing this asshole billionaire, like Jeff Bezos kind of character, um, which is also brilliant. Yeah. Like that's brilliant. brilliant. So like, usually that guy would be drinking like I don't know sifters of like caviar or something like that, and he's got like these <laughs> liver. He keeps asking his butler for a liver and whey shake, and they're just like, "What?" And it just it's so gross. Like it's just so gross. I love it so much. This too, I mean, we've talked a lot about soundtracks and stuff, but uh, there was a rejected Paul McCartney Wings song for this one. Alicia, what was up with that? Yeah, so um, Paul McCartney offered up his song, Did We Meet Somewhere Before?, which, you know, that title is very uh, complimentary to, to the plot of the film. And, you know, Warren Beatty didn't like it. So I just always think about it wasn't used. It was eventually used in Rock and Roll High School a couple of years later. But I just, I want a wiretap of that phone call of Warren Beatty to Paul McCartney being like, oh, hey, Paul. Yeah, it's it's Warren. Um, you know that song you wrote? I know you're like the greatest songwriter of all time, but that song you wrote for my, for my, my comedy that's written by Elaine May, who no one likes, yeah. that's, you know, about the football player who gets reincarnated. Yeah, it's not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't. I, I love yeah. I love it I love it so much that there was supposed to be a Wings Paul McCartney song in there and it got rejected one of the things that I love so much about comedy in general is that it's very incestuous like groups get together and then they cast each other and hire each other because senses of humor are just so specific that when you find people that jive on the same level you do and have the right timing with you you're able to play and one of the people who played very well with Elaine May was Neil Simon do you want to tell us a little bit about that cam i know you're a neil simon expert oh am i you you always <laughs> you tell are. me i'm an expert and i'm not uh well uh <laughs> neil simon is of course uh kind of one of the most famous playwrights of the 20th century and a popular playwright which is kind of an interesting thing it's a concept which i mean i guess uh lin-manuel miranda is the popular playwright of the day he's the neil but, simon uh, of our age but he produces a <laughs> heck of true. a lot less than Neil Simon. So uh, Neil Simon, yeah, a huge uh, Broadway legend. Uh, for a long time, produced every play that you knew. Uh, every every play that was kind of a light comedy 
was Neil Simon. Uh, and the interesting thing is when it comes to Hollywood, uh, he cranked out movie adaptations. Man, oh man. Yeah. Uh, pretty much since Barefoot in the Park in 1967, there was a Neil Simon movie at least every year, uh, if not multiples. And when we're talking about 1978, uh, we're going to be talking about California Suite, but there's also another Neil Simon movie, The Cheap Detective, Ugh. which actually even outgrossed it with Peter Falk. It's kind of a weird noir parody. Um, you didn't care for it, Alicia, from that you know tone, I've never not your bag? Seen it, but it's pretty notorious. There's, there's bits that are funny. Okay. <laughs> uh, there, there's some like uh, naked gunny stuff that you might be... And I mean Peter Falk. Who, who can oh, not I mean, just enjoy Peter Falk? Yeah. Uh, Bum, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that streak uh, started in 67 and continued well into the 1980s. So uh, it's kind of fascinating. And this is not peak Neil Simon necessarily because he still continued to have hits. But uh, he was coming off kind of uh, a big run, especially with director Herbert Ross, uh, who he would work with again in California Suite. But they had had the Sunshine Boys in 1975, which was a big flop, but had won George Burns an Oscar. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's a very strange movie because it's one of the many, Walter Matthau loved to play old men before he was old, but he <laughs> played. he's always the, looked old, so yeah. that's why he got cast as in high school and college, and he just oh, went yeah. with it, I get and, it. I mean, he played them exactly as he would age, <laughs> which is very confusing. So there's a series of old man <laughs> movies when he's like in his 30s, uh, and yeah, you can really mix them up. But yeah, uh, there was uh, movies like The Goodbye Girl uh, with Herbert Ross as well. Um, and of course, he, he had worked uh, with Elaine May on um, The Heartbreak Kid, mm-hmm. uh, which is an adaptation of his And she work. had worked with Walter uh, Matthau on A New Leaf. So there's a real like cyclical... Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and the actually the the craziest cycle, which has pretty much been lost to history even more than any Elaine May stuff, is uh, Neil Simon's California Suite, the movie we're going to talk about, is a part of a cycle of uh, hotel films <laughs> that started in 1971, actually, with Plaza Suite by uh, Edmonton native Arthur Hiller. Uh, mm. And that movie featured Walter Matthau in every uh, male role. What? It was the same cast rotated. So... Neil Simon loves Walter Matthau. <laughs> <laughs> Neil Simon and Elaine May both yeah. love Walter Matthau so much. I, I love Walter um, Matthau, too. <laughs> yeah. When you're talking about California Suite, it's one of those things where, like, it's an anthology film with multiple different segments of it, each telling a story of people who are in this hotel, in the Beverly Hills Hotel in yeah. California. And some of them are really strong and really funny, and some of them you can just write off at this point. So, as with all anthology films, there's some big hits and big misses, but it's mm-hmm. sounding like Plaza Suite is, like, all hits. Oh, Plaza, no, Plaza Suite, uh, I believe, is all misses. <laughs> I think, I think what you can really tell. one for each suite on Yelp. Uh, you know what? I, I haven't watched it. I, I mean, I love Walter Matthau, so I would probably get a kick out of it. Um, but I think what you see in California Suite is, uh, Neil Simon taking a bit more control and saying, uh, I don't like the idea of, uh, this repeating the cast thing which i think actually happens in the play of california suite Mm -hmm. it is a a thing that that these these plays have in common but he instead handpicked uh, a crazy all-star cast uh and every single person he picked agreed uh the cast is exactly the number one choice uh that neil simon wants i mean going through it uh you got jane fonda alan alda maggie smith michael kane walter Matthau, elaine may the aforementioned uh richard pryor uh bill 
Cosby uh, put a pin in that one. Uh, and uh, but you know, at the time, huge. I think that's him saying, you know, we're going to pull out all the stops and uh, make this movie. It kind of reminds me of like thinking about that star power. You know, looking at if Heaven Can Wait was a throwback to Golden Age Hollywood, I think this film is too with films like, you know, Grand Hotel from 1932 where you mm. had Greta Garbo, Lionel Barrymore, and John Barrymore, um, and of course, Joan Crawford, <laughs> and like it, it, Wallace Berry. Like it really was, that really is the cream of the crop in 1978 in terms of comedy. Like, and, and new, newcomers oh, uh, yeah. like Maggie Smith, who was like not that well known then. Sure. But I think it speaks to the value of Maggie Smith and to of the casting of her that, and the awareness is sh- this was nominated for an Oscar for an actress and it was her, yeah. Yeah. Not, not anybody else, the, and, you know, the British and, actress in a film called California Street. It won an Oscar. I mean, she she was uh, already an Oscar winner, but for the prime of Miss Jean Brody, which is, is much uh, more serious. It's interesting, an interesting choice. And I think, I mean, she's always, a lot of her films are kind of lighter stuff. Uh, in the era of young Maggie Smith, but uh, it's interesting to use her for such kind of a broad, wild comedy. Um, this might be a contentious opinion, but I think their segment between her and Michael Caine is the best oh, I segment. Agree. I oh, think it's the one that balances the comedy and the pathos the mm. best. Like a lot of it gets, like a lot of Neil Simon does, it gets very saccharine, you know, thinking about the choices we make, the choices mm. we make. Um, but this one I think plays it best and is the most sympathetic towards the choices that these characters have it's made. At least, it's at least and it's a little more too. Like it's. Even though she gets progressively more and more drunk. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also the most ambiguous in how you're supposed to feel Mm -hmm. about these people. And all the other choices, I think they tell, they kind of telegraph who you should like and whose side you should be on. Whereas I think this one is definitely more ambiguous about that, which is why I think she got nominated for the Oscar. Yeah. And and I mean, you are probably not alone because Neil Simon, uh, they're the only characters he revisited uh, in London Suite, the, the final suite oh. play. Uh, those characters actually come back. They're played by different actors. So there's only a TV movie adaptation, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so so he he liked those characters enough to write a sequel to just that part. Uh, I am personally, maybe because I'm stupid, partial to <laughs> Walter Matthau and Elaine May. Oh, no. I mean, well, as the Elaine May yeah. person, I'm, I was like joyous, like smile, you know, pasted on yeah. my mouth watching her. Because the, the segment goes on for quite a while until she comes on screen. And there's a great anticipation mm-hmm. of because she's she plays his wife and he's having an affair with a prostitute that his brother-in-law got is something like that and uh, she's gonna she has a key to the suite basically and he's trying to hide the prostitute and uh, oh you're just waiting for it and ineffectually he puts a blanket over top of her so like it's a never well, luckily she's right? very small it's, so it wasn't immediately yeah. obvious <laughs> yes it's a I just feel like the comedy in that it's one great. is amazing I and I mean yeah I, I think all it, it, I. Th- think maybe it's not that any one ba- part is bad because uh, the Jane Fonda and Alan Alda one which is mostly a drama is is quite effective uh it they just come together weirdly mm-hmm. i think that there's no quite they almost try to use the <laughs> ultra wacky uh Richard Pryor Bill Cosby segment as the wraparound <laughs> and it's it doesn't quite work because that one is the height of slapstick like bathtubs falling through ceilings <laughs> style uh insanity but uh but yeah but each each one kind of stands on its own it, it's an unusual movie and it's not the kind of thing i would normally turn on and, and i do think like you say i i don't always love the kind of saccharine 
end of Neil Simon, but that's why I like that there's something so weird and bleak and just goofy as the Elaine May Walter Matthau segment. It's uh, it's uh, just just comedy, you know. I found myself Pure... uh, counting all the David Hockney paintings that are now worth like forty million dollars <laughs> in each of the suites. Like I think I don't think that there was originally a Beverly Hills Hotel thing. I think that must have been a Neil Simon. And directorial decision to put every suite had its own thematic David Hockney. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. Very, play- It's very play-like. I mean, that's a very theatrical kind of concept. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're translating theater to film, especially in this kind of anthology, I mean, the a- editing is everything, right? Yeah. Like if you're watching this on stage, you'd just be like, well, the light comes up on this place and now we're here. And there's more suspension of disbelief in theater that you're just being transported even though you're in the same space. And the editing of this is really interesting. Alicia, I think you know a little bit more about the editor of this. Yeah, so the editor of this, you know, in 1978, won the honorary Oscar um, that year for her contribution to the field of editing. Her name is Margaret Booth. And for anyone who is a film editor or is interested in film editing or film, you know, buff, that is a name you should know and be very ingratiated to because she essentially was the first credited known film editor. Um, it was kind of her and Dorothy Arsner who got that credit at first. So originally everyone everyone was known as film cutters. The gir- there were girls who would just cut the film and mm. ostensibly they were editing the films in the silent era. But her career uh, goes back to 1915 uh, with D.W. Griffith. Wow. Um, I can't remember if she worked on A Birth of a Nation, but I think she did, which is crazy if you think about it. Uh, and so here she is in 1978, many, many years after. She's quite elderly at this point. Uh, editing California Suite. Like if you look at her filmography in IMDb, it's it's hundreds and hundreds of credits. Uh, so I, I do think it's a wonderful kind of nod on on California Suite's part to put her in that very modernist film mode. Someone who essentially invented parallel story editing with D.W. Griffith, like someone who would have been in charge of the first films that had multiple storylines occurring at the same time. Like what an interesting sort of tidbit to pack your film with. Um, someone like Margaret Booth. Thanks so much for this, Alicia. That's someone who I wasn't aware of. Um, but we're going to be talking about people who people have definitely heard of. When we come back, how do you make a Beatles movie without the Beatles? Because they did it twice in 1978. That's coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
You just can't debate that the Beatles were the biggest band of the 20th century, and that, of course, carries on to now. But they stopped being a band in 1969, a full decade before the movies we're about to talk about came out. And the time that they were a band, they were involved in four fictional feature films, starting with the game-changing Hard Day's Night, then Help, then Magical Mystery Tour, then Yellow Submarine, uh, which they appear briefly in a cameo at the end, although they don't provide their own voices for the animated film. Cam, you did an awesome essay about Hard Day's Night. What made a Beatles movie a Beatles movie? Uh, well, I think the interesting thing is partially what makes a Beatles movie a Beatles movie is Richard Lester. They worked with director Richard Lester from Hard Day's Night onward. And I think, interestingly, his sensibility really uh, affected the image of the Beatles. Um, I think he worked very closely with the Beatles developing a Hard Day's Night uh, and with Alan Owen, the uh screenwriter to try to reflect their actual personalities but basically when you think of the image of john paul george and ringo uh you are getting what he made of them and the fact that he did both uh hard day's night and help and i think really the feeling of help kind of continues throughout magical mystery tour is actually mostly by the beatles yeah yeah they went uh, out to the middle of nowhere with a camera to see if something would happen and nothing happened it's rough (laughs) totally it's (laughs) it's a weird acid trip uh made for tv It's, it's relatively lost too because i think the rights just went poof so uh you might not know that one but they it still kind of suits the the wacky experimental uh richard lester flavor um so yeah i think it's it's kind of an interesting thing i mean obviously they're musical uh quite often people point out that their films are sort of progenitors of uh music videos because they would do these weird uh, experimental films set to their music um or silly dumb help stuff i'm not a not a huge help fan i'll admit but uh you know a wacky uh, ski chase uh, that could easily be a mariah carey really because you know? i think help is more quotable than hard day's night is like help's oh, got boy. like it's a thingy a fiendish thingy which i still think is hilarious because you know Listen, <laughs> george harrison uh... the comedian of the group really <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is that one, to be fair, that one at least leans heavily on Ringo, who was interested in being an actor and went on to have shiny, uh, shiny the most time significant station. acting career. So, uh. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one of our great actors, <laughs> Caveman Aww. the Movie. All, all of those uh, fabulous films we remember. Uh, uh, but he's the best actor, <laughs> unfortunately. Push come to shove. But yeah, I think so. I think what makes a Beatles movie, it, it, it tends to be like an anarchic tone. Uh, it's usually comedic. Uh, it's usually uh, like a little wild, a little crazy, some over-the-top stuff. Quite often weird fantasy elements. Uh, I think because... Hard Day's Night is really the only, like, straight Beatles movie. Mm-hmm. The rest of them involve psychedelic kind of stuff. Uh, even by help's point, they're already into, like, weird, colorful films that are full of wacky outfits. And, uh, and obviously Yellow Submarine is just an acid trip. There's some, some really edgy stuff in Hard Day's Night, too, though, especially in the background. Like, there's that moment where John Lennon is literally <laughs> snorting a bottle of Coke in the background. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> and yeah, you're sure. just and like, I mean, you got away with that. The weird drunk uncle <laughs> that, that Richard Lester throws in uh, is a weird dark character. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The the kind of overall is like it's kind of a weird miserable life to be uh, pursued and so famous. Yeah, which I mean is is help as long as you think that weird assassins after a ring is the same thing. Uh, but yeah, what it is is kind of a colorful musical uh, weird movie. I would say. 
So, obviously, Beatles movies used to be made with the Beatles, but come 1978, they weren't there anymore. So they started to make jukebox musicals out of the music of the Beatles. Now, this wasn't the first time they'd done this. There is a very strange, also lost to time film called All This and World War II, where it is footage from World War II set to music of the Beatles, which has covers in it. It's like the biggest pop stars of the day. People like Tina Turner doing Come Together, which if you haven't heard her version of Come Together, it is excellent. Of course it is, it's Tina Turner. But you can also see that uh, the Bee Gees are starting to do a couple takes, because at that time they were becoming one of the biggest bands in the world, which leads us to the ever-controversial Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh boy. Alicia, do you want to talk a little bit about how this came to be? Because <laughs> it's it's something. It's hard to discuss how it came to be because as I'm talking or as I'm writing my notes, I do question whether that was a fever dream. Like, am I remembering <laughs> am I remembering the S and M massage robots? You know, this is nineteen seventy eight and we've we've talked in the a previous episode about disco and if there's one name that you really need to know when talking about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, maybe even more so than the Beatles or the Bee Gees or Peter Frampton who stars in it, it's uh Robert Stigwood. He is the film's producer. And if that's a name that our, our listeners aren't familiar with, you're definitely familiar with his productions. So in nineteen seventy eight alone, he had like the number one and number two film at the box office, which was uh, Grease and Saturday Night Fever. He had produced uh, stage productions of Hair, Jesus Christ Superstar, Tommy. Um, also in film, he did a film that I love that never gets mentioned in, with his name, and it's Bugsy Malone. His like pedigree was so incredible. And that's just film and you know theater. He was also the, the manager for the Bee Gees and for the band Cream. Can we just say for our younger listeners is Cream is what gave us Eric Clapton. There's a name younger people will yeah. recognize. Because, yeah, young people love <laughs> Eric Clapton. Yeah, yeah, but they'll know, it's a name that you'll know over the name <laughs> well, Cream, right? I don't know. That young it's people, funny because uh, we'll talk about talking? Peter Frampton more because he, to me, you know, and I ended up really liking this film in the end, but hating the process. A lot of it was because of Peter Frampton, who's this very, you know, is the film star and he's very young. And I had a really hard time not picturing all the Simpsons clips of Peter Frampton at Woodstock, you know, when he's like, I think is it Cypress Hill has stolen his mm-hmm. inflatable pig. Sure. And he's just like, the, it's really pig. his voice. He's just the butt of every joke. And I think the reason he's become the butt of a lot of jokes might be because of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was actually a stage production before it was ever a film, but of course it's going to be natural given his successes that it's going to become a film. And it's going to be produced by Universal, who is also um, in the midst of producing The Wiz, talked about on an earlier episode. Of course he's going to cast the Bee Gees, which is a band that it's kind of like he's double dipping. He would have gotten royalties from the Bee Gees being in this film, but then also made money off being a producer. So he casts the Bee Gees and he casts Peter Frampton, who at that point, Frampton Comes Alive was like the top selling album from 1976. It was still like in, I think, the top 10 by 1978 at the time that this was released. It was this monumental film. So everyone knew this very innocent looking 
blonde hair, cherubic, you know, Peter Frampton. So why not cast him as uh, Billy Shears, the the protagonist of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band? I feel like it's important to say that Robert Stigwood sounds and seems like a yes. maniac. <laughs> like, it seems more surprising that he had so yes. much success than he made a crazy movie. I mean, this is a man a who, who made a gangster film with 11 year olds, uh, including Scott Baio yeah, and Jodie yeah. Foster. Again. <laughs> and this is yeah, after anytime a disaster, I can reference Bugsy Malone, I'm going to. But, um, yeah, this and this it's interesting because when you uh, you know I was just doing research on Wikipedia and it's like he has a very long entry and it goes through like his successes and at no point other than the listing in his filmography is Sergeant Pepper even mentioned. Like it's almost like written out of his history because it's such yeah. an anom- anomaly. You know, it was a relative commercial failure. Like it may, it did make some money, but critically this was like the butt of every joke. <laughs> For every film critic or kind of pop culture commentator or music critic, and it's it's, it's I think it's a little bit unfair because I do think of it as a really interesting trinket in in time capsule. Yeah, is that a word it's, you've used? it's time definitely capsule? a time capsule of the drug culture of you know these bands in some cases kind of early in their in their you know what's about to be monumental stardom so you've got Aerosmith you've got Earth Wind and Fire who probably for me anyway I don't know if you two agree to me that's one of the best performances in the film um, oh, yeah. of, uh, no, 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 to get sure. you into my life it's so good um, yeah and, and obviously a really great Alice Cooper performance which I love as this like mad scientist it's very appropriate but then you also have non I mean they're all musical performances but then you have someone like Steve Martin who I love that segment in the film. It's um, he's performing Maxwell's Silver Hammer as this crazed like doctor, and it's it's the choreography is beautiful in the sequence. He had the number one selling comedy album at the time. In fact, it hit the like Billboard Top 100, which is really rare for a comedy album. So he was a monumental star in 1978. It, what I also love is watching this, I realize, oh my god, this is foreshadowing that iconic role he has in uh, Little Shop of Horrors as the mm. the sadist dentist. And I think that's one that stood out. Uh, of the non-super uh, singers, uh, that what? one stood you're, out you, you got You're going to come for George Burns? You're going to come for classic <sighs> Hollywood <laughs> actor yes. George Burns? Am I going to come for Donald, Donald Pleasant? <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I am. He, he He's a great actor, but do yeah. not give him a song. He's what are you slow. smoking? <laughs> a lot. Cam, a lot. 1978. I mean, our yeah, cocaine, George Burns I don't is, even know. Uh, Mr. Kite, who's kind of the narrator of the film. <laughs> it's interesting because I was reading interviews that Becky sent us, uh, you know, period interviews, actually, in Rolling Stone magazine pr- <laughs> that were done prior to the film being released. And, you know, they're kind of asking George Burns how he feels about the Beatles. And he was very, I was surprised by how hip he was. Like, he was just like, oh, yeah, Gracie and yeah. I have listened to the Beatles for, for decades. And so, you know, it's interesting. He seemed to be very, like, had, had his kind of finger on the pulse. At, and he was, I think, 78 or, like, 81 at this point. Like, really, really old. Yeah. And they're kind of, it's kind of cute watching him dance around. But, you know, for every kind of questionable performance that might be in this film, there's also just amazing performances. I do think that Aerosmith song for um, Come Together is really, really good. I don't know if Steven Tyler even knows what film set he is on. 
There's a lot of non-consensual <laughs> scarf play that's very effective. Um, Aerosmith yeah. is the future villain band. Supposed to be Kiss, but they turned it down for Phantom of the Park, which is arguably the one worst <laughs> decision made by any oh, cast member. I really member. like the Aerosmith performance. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's. I think that is probably... Because they, they went on to literally record that yeah. and put that on an album. So it, it's probably the biggest... Uh, if anyone has heard, has not seen the movie and has heard it's a song from that. the movie, it's likely that yeah. Aerosmiths come together. Well, I want to bring us into the music just for a second because this was all produced by George Martin, who did all of the Beatles albums, including Sgt. Well, most of the Beatles albums in their later years, including Sgt. Pepper. He is notorious for liking to futz mm. with Beatles songs. Mm. Uh, people would remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, he released an album of Beatles cover songs before he went deaf with artists who he wanted to hear mm sing those things. So you have Jim Carrey doing I Am the Walrus, which arguably, I actually think it's kind of cool and fun, but I know many people are like, it's a nightmare disaster. So so I get that. But you also get like Celine Dion doing Here, There, and Everywhere, which is stunning and gold in how that song should be performed. Mm. He did the same thing with this, where he kind of helped handpick who was going to be doing these songs. And so like he was like, oh yeah, Aerosmith needs to do Come Together. That's Mm -hmm. just their vibe. He told Alice Cooper to do the song Alice Cooper was actually trying to sing the song like John Lennon. He was like, no, 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 do it like Alice Cooper. <laughs> so you end up with this little voice that almost sounds like Eartha Kitt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's kind of wild. But with the Bee Gees, the Bee Gees came in and they were trying to do it like the Bee Gees with the multi-part harmony because they have freaking blood harmony. And he kept telling them to do it more like the Beatles. And apparently this there was some bad blood going on in this. I'm, I'm really curious because he let all these other bands with these distinctive signature sounds just go. Uh, what I think is way weird. Uh, the plot of the film is like set in America, uh, starring Australians and British people. Uh, so they don't talk, which is a weird part of the movie. It's all narrated. Um, By but, George Burns. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, that makes sense. He's American. I, I, I know part of the reason why people wanted this movie and thought it would be interesting, and part of the reason this late 70s Beatles boom happened, is the Beatles hadn't toured uh, a lot of these albums, uh, and people never saw them perform. Right, so point. seeing any musician perform them is interesting. But uh, but I guess that that also makes a push that uh, you want to hear it mm-hmm. like the Beatles would hear it, play it, you know? Like, you you don't want to hear the Bee Gees cover of it. You just want to he- see the Beatles perform it, frankly. Uh, it's also a weird time where, you know, the Beatles were mm-hmm. all still alive, right? Like, that's a very short window. So I, I think that there was always hope that some Beatles thing would just bring mm-hmm. back the Beatles, you know? Yeah. Cam, you were talking about the plot. And I mean, we haven't really talked Mm. much about the plot because it doesn't really matter. Even the writer of the film itself said it's hokum, but if it's done with style, people will watch (laughs) it. Like that's, that probably says everything you need. This is a movie built for YouTube and just go watch like the little individual clips of it because that's really what's necessary. But Alicia, your favorite part of this film is the ending where they kind of tried to, if you will, recreate the Sgt. Pepper's album cover with all the different celebrities. Yeah, so I mean, leave it to Robert uh, Stigwood to just decide to fly anyone who was a, a minor celebrity in 1977-1978 to the set, all expenses paid, just to put them in this insanely long wide shot where you have i'm not kidding at least 50 people all singing you know the last beatles song and if you just like 
it's not there's not a ton of close-ups there's some so it's easy to recognize a few people but if you just pause and you kind of kind of like if you went through a class photo you know like a really large class photo you go like from the back row and over you have Keith Carradine, Etta James, Minnie Ripperton, Cheetah Rivera, Carol Channing, Dave Edna, Donovan, Tina Turner, who's having a blast because her divorce from Ike had just been finalized like a few weeks prior. <laughs> you can tell Tina yeah, as okay. if you couldn't anyway, but she's dancing, she's dancing fun, like yeah. crazy. The Doobie Brothers, Wolfman Jack, and then like probably a ton of like at least 40 other people that I'm missing uh, Gwen Verdon who is my favorite choreographer of all time and I do wonder if she she may have consulted on the choreography of the um, Steve Martin segment because that to me is very Fosse very Gwen Verdon I love th- this film like that scene won me over for this film which is really like it, it worked like if I could write to Stigwood I'd be like it worked you did it I hated everything about this <laughs> film and then somehow came around watching like Carol Channing not really know what set she's on dancing Carol Channing's just like raspberries the doobie brothers on either side the there's implications from a couple of bg's biographies too that part of the uh, reason people came is it's like yeah. here's a pile of drugs yeah. <laughs> oh, that was kind of uh, implicit a, a couple of the bg's were uh, deep into their yeah, addictions I mean, at the time and said that it was I a very like drug fueled set at like 6 a.m which was last call at studio 54 like gotten a bulldozer rounded up anyone who was left at 6 a.m at studio 54 <laughs> and then bust them to set like at 7 a.m. and there they are still all in their outfits and they're like drug addled yeah. um, shimmies. Uh, yeah, I really if, if there's like only one scene in this film to watch, I would say it's that one. I think that having a post of just like how many of these celebrities yeah. can you name? Like how many people? Everybody knows at last, but how many people could pick Etta James out of a lineup? Well, especially Etta James in her like in her sixties. Like they're they're older at this point. A lot of people apparently did not that know right. what they were doing. <laughs> like they just showed up and were like, huh? One of the things we should mention briefly is uh, about Michael Schultz, who at the time was one of the one of the only and one of the biggest uh, black directors working in Hollywood, was the person who was recruited to direct this debacle. Uh, Cam, do you want to talk a little bit about him? Yeah, sure. He he's uh, somebody who is a very interesting figure. I think partially because his name is Michael Schultz, a lot of people don't remember that he is a black man and one of the biggest uh, pioneering black directors in, in this part of the century. Um, it was basically just him and Sidney Poitier at the time. Uh, and this was kind of a big deal because it was ostensibly a quote-unquote white movie uh, with a black director. Um, he is interesting because he's, uh, I think his early films, there's like a lot of like uh, the hand of the auteur, as we say in film stuff. Uh, Cooley High is very good. Uh, he, of course, at car wash this is he was kind of coming off a, a streak uh that uh made him very big um but he's also a, a workman like director who would take on anything and honestly when you read these interviews i think he just was really charmed by robert stigwood and uh really felt that this guy had a vision and he was there to execute this guy's vision uh so i i don't know how much uh like super influence he had unfortunately uh, the bgs especially 
really kind of blame him when <laughs> I think it's obviously Robert Stigwood's fault. Uh, it doesn't seem like this movie is poorly directed. There's mm-hmm. crazy dances. Uh, there's a bit of everything. And I do think that there's a, like, he brings a slight influence of uh, black culture, uh, especially just because the Earth, Wind, mm-hmm. and Fire part is so good. Uh, the fact that oh, Billy Preston oh, yeah. shows Billy up at the end Preston, and fixes that's everything. That's one of the banner performances. <laughs> like, I. Oh. Yeah, he's so incredible as a reincarnated weather vane. <laughs> like, yeah. I think he was in the original van. Yeah, so I don't remember, but piano. yeah. At the very least, he's a magical weather vane who uh, resurrects the dead woman. It's unfortunate because it, it, I think it did kind of wobble his career. But the interesting thing with Michael Schultz, he, he's also. I think probably one of the most prolific African-American directors of all time, partially because he could bop around. And if anything went wrong, he just went on to something else. Uh, So he he had a couple more big movies in the 70s. He moved on to the big TV movie boom uh, and uh, made a lot of those. But he was back in the 80s with a bunch of stuff. I mean, he made Disorderlies. He made The Last Dragon. Uh, a lot of kind of fun movies you don't think about who directed them. And, and a lot of, again, important uh, African-American films, whether they be comedies or kind of big studio movies. Uh, and he directs to this day, which is also that. cool. Like, this is a guy that still works. Yeah, he works. All, he just mm-hmm. does a lot of TV like like most people uh but he seems like a real go-to guy for tv like uh and and interestingly musicals i think he did a lot of crazy ex-girlfriend so this is not his uh you know this is a guy who i think it's kind of one of those people that maybe it was a black mark on his name to the outside public but i think within the working hollywood world they're like oh this guy does musicals he made a musical and and, you know this film still made money like Yes. You know, when we say it was a flop, it it's since become a huge cult classic. I think there is more so in the UK and in Australia. Um, you know, people really get behind this film. And now having watched it twice, I get that. I would actually love to see this on the big screen, you know, as it's meant to be seen, not on YouTube, which I think is mostly how people are watching it. But to watch it on the big screen, like in a really good 35 millimeter print with good sound, I think that would there's be delightful. There's footage. Yeah, yeah. There's footage oh, from yeah, the absolutely. premiere of people just being so excited and like everybody does their big red oh, carpet roll up. But there's this fantastic moment with uh, these women who have just discovered that they've brought the Bee Gees in through the back door and she is not happy about it. And I have some very bad news. I have just been informed that the Bee Gees are already inside. You're kidding. No, no, no. We've been here all day. No. Only premiere. I mean, that's ridiculous. What's a premiere for? But that's just one particular kind of fandom. And speaking about another kind of fandom, our next film that we're going to talk about is all about Beatlemania and toxic fandom, even though it's a pretty fun, pretty exciting movie uh, (laughs) called I Want to Hold Your Hand. Uh, This is one of those movies I am shocked I had not heard about until I did the year in film television show because of who all is involved with it. They have the Beatles catalog in it. um, And uh, it's very clearly a setup for Back to the Future and Forrest Gump. Cam, do you want to tell us a little bit about I Want to Hold Your Hand and Robert Zemeckis, Bob Gale, and... Steven Spielberg. Sure, yeah. So uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand is is probably best known as the first film of Robert Zemeckis. Director and of, it's kind of, of course, yes. Oh, Can, yes. The canonical. Among, uh, yeah. The number one. A year uh, in film, uh, film. Director of Welcome <laughs> to Marwin. <laughs> no. I love him. No, I'm not saying that. As a, I think he's, I, with the exception I of Death Becomes a Rules, I think we all agree. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he, he's a very interesting guy. And it's a kind of an interesting thing because he's just five years younger than Steven Spielberg. But 
you really see kind of the effects of different generations in Hollywood. Uh, because uh, Robert Zemeckis said he was inspired to make movies after watching Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. So Spielberg, who is such a big part of the new Hollywood, and uh, somehow five years later, <laughs> there manages to be like a child of the new Hollywood. Robert Zemeckis ends up going to USC. Uh, he meets Bob Gale, who is his co-writing partner. Their biggest things are, you know, Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future. They they work together a lot on these famous movies. Uh, interestingly, at USC, they wrote <laughs> Bordello of Blood, Ooh. which would come out much later. Uh, they were drawn to each other because unlike everybody else, and I think unlike, for instance, Spielberg and Lucas, they were inspired more by TV, more by uh, Hollywood movies, and they wanted to be Hollywood filmmakers. Mm-hmm. They weren't inspired like everybody else by, you know, the French New Wave. Uh, they, were, they just wanted to make fun, big blockbusters anyway uh for some reason zemeckis i guess uh like many good hollywood stories high on his uh own uh, like white guy powers <laughs> just burst into steven spielberg's office fairly walks walks past his secretary and plopped down a field of honor and was like you gotta watch this and tell me what you think uh and steven spielberg loved it zemeckis had been developing kind of a Beatles movie for a while. He actually got into USC by editing together footage to Beatles music. He was a big Beatle maniac. Uh, so the first film they put up together was I Want to Hold Your Hand, this kind of story of uh, all these different uh, urban legends about the Beatles and Beatle maniacs. And uh, it got made essentially on the name of Steven Spielberg. And it's interesting. I mean, it's post-Jaws, but it's still interesting that it, Steven Spielberg had that much pull already and also uh the studio only made it with saying uh, that steven spielberg would be quite often on set <laughs> and if steven spielberg saw anything go wrong uh he would fully like drop kick zemeckis and take over the entire film uh so yeah it, it ended up being this kind of first chance uh for uh robert zemeckis and bob gale who who wrote it together and uh yeah it's it's kind of unlike sergeant pepper uh, this is more of a, even though it's totally wacky, uh, a look at the real world uh, kind of phenomena of the Beatles. I think what kind of broke my face, and I think Alicia too, is it follows a group of young women as Beatle maniacs. And you do have one, there is a group of young men as well who are kind of like their, their associates and cohorts. They're sidekicks. Yeah, but they mm. are the sidekicks to these young women, um, yeah. the cast of which is absolutely insane. Uh, Alicia, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, this, it's an interesting case where it's a film that takes place over like one day and one night. I always kind of love those all-nighter films where, you know, it's a really condensed storyline. It's about these four women who are kind of like recent high school graduates, maybe going into college. Um, and their friend, who's played by Wendy Jo Sperber, maybe a name you don't recognize, but you would certainly recognize her face as the sister, the McFly sister from uh, Back to the Future, She's the rabid Beatles fan. Like, she's the fan, and the film kind of opens in a record store where the new release is coming out, and it's like chaos and women clawing at each other like young girls like screaming to try to get the new record and she kind of convinces her friends that you know they need to be there they're all from new jersey they need to go to new york and see the ed sullivan show like the first recording of the beatles live in the u.s they don't have a lot of money so they're trying to find tickets and it's all these kind of scams and the four of them actually separate um the other three women are played really well uh one of them is nancy allen who was then uh brian de palma's fiance and you would recognize her from a number of De Palma films. She's really wonderful. And, and Robocop. Robocop. Yeah, I'm sorry. Come on. Yeah. She's really Always Robocop. She's really great 
because she's like about in the film she's about to you know she's engaged she's about to become married and she's like ready to grow up and then she's not really a Beatles fan that much in the beginning of the film and you watch her understand the (laughs) rabid obsession and fandom to the point where she breaks into the Beatles hotel room which I think isn't it might be an urban legend but women actually did this and like hid under the bed and you're just watching her see their feet and hyperventilate it's very charming can we take just for just a second to be like okay this is why these guys were going to go on to be such incredible filmmakers because the Beatles are not actually in this movie but the way they Mm. shoot everything it looks like they are from the knee (laughs) down or different yeah. camera angles. Yeah. Like it's, it's a genius way yeah. of doing it. It's yeah. important to say, too, that while they're not in the movie, you never see an actor that is pretending to be the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like a... It's always it's, the Beatles when you see them through a through a camera or through yeah, a, a, a mirror, TV. like from the back of their head. It's it's a real trick of smoke and mirrors, and it's done impeccably. And at no point was I getting distracted by it. I was so enmeshed in these, like... These journeys that these these four women are going on. Um, Teresa Saldana is another uh, of the of the ladies, and then um, really interesting. You have um, uh, Susan Kendall Newman, who is Paul Newman's daughter, who actually hasn't been in very many films. This is her debut, yeah. and I don't think she did that much afterwards. But when you see her, you'll know she actually looks a lot like Paul Newman. And one of my favorite parts it's in the opening of the film, and you see the guy up on the marquee. Um, which I guess it's Radio City Music Hall, I think, that they played. And he's put Beatles, but it's spelled wrong with two E's. And you see him and he's like pissed off and he gets up on his ladder and he puts the A up. And I'm like, what a lovely touch. <laughs> such a like tongue in cheek yeah. way to prepare the audience. Um, you know, for a film about four women who are in the lead, I'm not super surprised that we don't know this film, that this isn't a canonical sort of retro film that looks back at the nineteen late 1950s, early 1960s, because I think just those films that focused on female characters got written out of history very quickly. Like I said, and we're going to get into this in a second, this is very much a dry run for Forrest Gump and Back to the Future. Like, there's so yes. many elements that are very, very similar that they even um, they even take out. Sure. I mean, like, lightning bolts, car stunts, like, it is, mm-hmm. it's very much those things. But I think one of the things that's so interesting about it is that there was no... There was no release even after those movies became big. So in the 90s and 2000s, Mm. they would release these box sets of movies where one would be a very popular movie and then another one would be like another movie that had that star or another movie Mm -hmm. by that director that was maybe not as successful and that's how they'd be able to sell it. There wasn't a mix pack, which this was included in with any of Zemeckis or Gale's other films. Mm -hmm. It just kind of got buried, which is heartbreaking because I like this better than most of their films. Yeah, and critically, critics responded to this like um, Zemeckis gives a really great story about doing the first test screening of this film and much like you know the audience the fake audience in Ed Sullivan's show who are screaming and laughing he saw that emulated in the audience for this test screening like it went epically well and the you know the studio was so happy with it and the critics liked it and then it just did nothing like it yeah, ended up losing money and it's it. it was the first example where he was like he realized you could have, you could put your all into a film and you can be proud of it. And it's a good film. And, you know, it has everything going for it, It had a marketing budget, all of that. And it just doesn't take. And I think it's such a sad, sad realization. I, you know, to think of the man who would eventually go on to make, you know, back to the future, realizing that very early in his debut, that some things just don't, 
don't work out. Uh, he also has this fascinating thing where he only got to make Back to the Future because he made Romancing the Stone. And Romancing the Stone tested so poorly, <laughs> he was fired from his next movie, which was Cocoon. <laughs> and Ron Howard took it over. And then it made so much money like number one that the, the studio... Office. Yeah, the studio was like, uh, bah, 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 uh, you can make whatever you want. And he's like, I have this script called Back to the Future. Oh and they're like, yeah, 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 <laughs> no oversight, no oversight. Uh, because everyone had hated the script to Back That's to the so Future. So it's like, he, I kind of don't <laughs> blame him when he makes a crazy whiff. Because <laughs> how do you have that career and not just be like, uh, nothing makes sense. Yeah. The world is chaos. But he's talking about creatives um, and taking those chances, right? Like yeah. one of the things yeah. they're doing here that no one had really done, which they would later go on to win Oscars for in Forrest Gump, is recreating segments of history. And, and so like you Ed have Sullivan sure. as a character. Will yeah. Jordan, yeah. right? Will Jordan was the foremost uh, Ed Sullivan impersonator at that time, which I love the fact <laughs> that Ed Sullivan was big enough that you could have a career as a head Sullivan yeah, person. Yeah. A man who had no personality seemingly was, I know, very substantial to television history, but like, Sorry. how would you describe Ed Sullivan's personality other than he <laughs> yeah. spoke very slowly and had a weird, possibly Lithuanian accent? <laughs> That's all I know about him. Big shoulders. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> he had like no neck. I don't know, but like, it, it's so effective, yeah. the, the casting of that impersonator and the way they shoot around him to mm. really pull off the effect that it is Ed Sullivan, who was very dead by 1978. Um, you know, when he did this show with the Beatles, which I think we're talking 1961, he was already in his, like, mid-60s. Like, he was a, an yeah. older man to be really dictating and, and on the wave of teen culture. It's kind of unusual. Well, you're also talking about, yeah, the way they shoot around that and then the use of the police brutality scenes as they're trying to yeah. haul these teenagers back and watching yeah. how handsy these cops are getting with these so teenagers, violent. which with a 2020 yeah. vision, you're like, there weren't riots in the streets about this. But like these kids, like the way they shoot yeah. these kids, which is what it was like when you look at footage and photos it's of terrifying. these children, mm. like trying to tear <laughs> apart these other basically children. The Beatles were children at this point. Yeah. It's yeah. just it's wild. And it captures that energy so beautifully which you would then go on to see as teenagers um acting out and acting wild in back to the future yeah yeah i think an interesting thing that rob uh bob gale i don't know why i'm <laughs> robert gale i th <laughs> think an interesting thing that robert zemeckis and bob gale know as well is that even by the 70s which we see in a lot of these movies uh people were already forgetting what the 50s and 60s were mm -hmm. like. Uh, and I mean, that uh, I think especially uh, like to put a kind of a fine point on it, I, I think that he already s realized that people thought that like women in the 50s were these like uh, subdued, beautiful, yeah. like, yeah. Precious. And he like <laughs> so many of his movies are like, Women are horny. <laughs> like, uh, women in the 50s, uh, they wanted the Beatles because they wanted to have sex with them. Yeah. <laughs> and like, that's the same thing with Back to the Future, right? It's like, hey, uh, your mom, when she was a teenager, was horny. <laughs> uh, that is like what was driving teenagers. A yeah. uh, hot reminder, just because it's the past doesn't mean that kids acted differently. Well, and especially like, you know, basing this film in this particular time period. This is kind of the first concept of the teenager 
You know, like the the teen mm-hmm. the teenager as we think of it, associated with rock and roll, doesn't really come about until even the term teenager doesn't come about until the 1950s. And so the girls that are maybe like 20 in this film would have been, you know, the original Mickey Mouse Clubbers, like from the TV show. I mean, the Mickey Mouse Club goes back to the 30s, but when it was televised, those Mickey Mouse Clubbers that wore the ears and sang then grew up to be teenagers obsessed with rock and roll and obsessed with Hollywood and obsessed like rabid, rabid fandom. They're also the first generation of children, you know, children or young adults to have disposable income. So that's why you could buy the Beatles themed bedsheets and the Beatles paraphernalia like that didn't exist 20 years prior. You didn't have that kind of idea like in the Depression or even post initial post-war that teenagers were these major major buying powers that you could market to and i think that's such so much of a part of this film well as we're rounding up with that we'll just finish off with something um that is important to know about this but maybe this may be disturbing for some listeners this actually was involved with a true crime incident a film being about toxic fandom and uh, unfortunately something happened to one of the actresses related to this film which was also about toxic fandom uh alicia do you want to tell us a bit about that yeah so one of the leads in this uh film is Teresa saldana and this was her debut role, you would probably recognize her, well, you might recognize her from her her more recent work in the TV show The Commish, but she would eventually go on to play a supporting role in Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull in 1981. She's um, Jake LaMotta's sister-in-law, the woman that's married to Joe Pesci, and she got a lot of critical notice for that. Unfortunately, Teresa Saldana was one of the early, one of the earlier cases of um, stalking that would actually change the law for, for around stalking would form laws around stalking that and the Rebecca Schaefer um, murder. So um, so there was a man in Scotland named Arthur Jackson who was, you know, at that point was had already committed a number of crimes. And he saw, according to the New York Times obituary for Teresa Saldana, because she passed away in 2016, it was this film in combination with Raging Bull that led to him to become obsessed with her. Um, he thought he was the angel of death and it was his sort of resp- he was obviously mentally ill. It was his responsibility to murder her. So he illegally entered the United States in uh, 1982 and hired a private private detective to track down her mother's address. That was partially allowed because at that time, the DMV gave out anyone's address and phone Jesus. number to anyone who asked. That's one of the laws that Teresa Saldana helped um, wow. uh, enact, which was a privacy act around DMV information. Arthur Jackson posed as Martin Scorsese's private uh, personal assistant and called uh, Teresa Saldana's mother, saying that there was a new role that Martin was interested in Saldana perhaps auditioning for and could he have her home address. And her mother gave it to him because this was just normalized at this time. He waited for her outside of her apartment building, stabbed her 10 times, puncturing her lung. Jesus. Uh, in front of bystanders, which included children outside of her apartment building. Jesus. And the only reason, one of the only reasons she survived medical treatment, obviously, but uh, a delivery truck was driving by and the driver saw this happening and everyone just watching it and jumped out and apprehended him. Um, and luckily she got to a hospital in time. She was, you know, really, really wounded. Like it's a miracle that she survived. Um, it was months and months of recovery. Um, but you know, it's just an interest. It's it's a very sad, tragic, but very poignant sort of story that leans into this film about rabid fandom. Because I think 
you know, we think of it so quaint with the Beatles. Like, oh, that was kind of like how Camusang as women were thought of as just mm. so quaint. And but it's easy fact, to laugh and you're invited to laugh at it, right? Yeah, and you're, yeah. 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 And this is dangerous. I mean, this happened, you know, when you hear about when Charlie Chaplin would appear on the streets in organized appearances or when Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks on their like honeymoon would make an appearance. People died because of like of basic riots and trampling like this kind of celebrity we have it today like watching this i realized i want so badly sort of like a film maybe by bong joon ho on like (laughs) k-pop fandom like something really dark like parasite like he's he would be the person to make it there's something similar to that uh there's a film a japanese anime film called perfect blue that Mm. dredges those waters that if people want something in that vein it's very difficult to watch it's very disturbing but yeah perfect blue is is excellent and it follows that kind of train about a k-pop or about a a j-pop idol and i mean if you want a positive story uh, about a crazy person, uh, Eddie Deason, who's yes, in the film, so good. got the role. He got the role simply because he is a maniac about the beat. I, I mean, he got the role partially because he's one of the greatest on-screen nerds of all time. Yeah. But one of the things he's very nerdy about is the Beatles, and he apparently created a Beatles quiz that no one has ever <laughs> answered properly <laughs> because he is, and he to this day like demands he is the number one Beatles fan. Oh, I've, I've, I've met him. It. I've met him, and that is exactly oh, yeah. Wow. That's how he introduces himself oh, yeah. as the number one Be- Eddie Deason, number one Beatles fan. Uh, he's he's lovely. Uh, yeah, um, well, so, and I another mean, uh, another positive thing, luckily, is that through all this, this film helped sort of found Victims for Victims, which was yeah. Teresa Saldana's like very, very monumental charity to help people like her who had gone through something like that. Well, thank you very much, Alicia. I really appreciate you taking the deep dive on that one. I know yeah. there's probably some probably mm-hmm. some sleepless nights, uh, but that's all we have time for this week, guys. I had a lot of fun. I don't know about you. So Yay. thank you so much, Alicia Fletcher. Thank you, Becky. This one, this was a good one. I'm going to watch Sgt. Pepper again tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. I listen to the soundtrack sometimes, I'm not going to lie. And uh, right. I just love, I love it. I'm a big Alice Cooper fan. I love the Alice Cooper segment. That song and, is the uh, best. Sure. It's so good. And uh, Cam Maitland, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. I, the one thing I will give Sergeant Pepper is it's better than across the universe. Yes. But otherwise, <laughs> uh, throw, throw those both in the trash. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So join us in two weeks um, where we're going to find out what happens when Disney no longer has its stranglehold on animation. I'm going to tell you what happens. It involves bunnies, hobbits, and a whole lot of childhood trauma. Join us again in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to chat with us and find more great content? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. The home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. Uncut and commercial free on four HD channels and on demand. Learn how you can subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Kevin Lipset. Until next time. I have just thrown up on some of the best people in Hollywood. Now is no time to be sensitive.